Welcome back to All Else Equal, podcast connecting undergrads with Notre Dame expertise. Forrest, uh, what do we have lined up for today? So we had Tommy Perro and Spencer Kale on earlier this semester talking about GameStop, Chicken Tenders, Citadel, <laughs> Robin Hood. Uh, I think we should follow up on a topic that's continuing to gain traction, which is payment for order flow. Ah, uh, yes, the never-ending GameStop saga. Well, if you want to talk payment for order flow, then I know just the guy, Robert Battaglio. So Robert is a literal expert on payment for order flow. He was testified in front of Congress and is on the congressional shortlist for expert witnesses. He's also a professor and the William and Casey Daly Department Chair of Finance. He's published numerous papers in top finance journals and teaches MBAs, undergrads, everyone in between, really. That's great. Let's talk to Robert and see if we can finally start digging into the saga that is GameStop. Robert, thank you for joining us today on our podcast. All right, so thanks for being here, Rob. Uh, so GameStop is currently at $193 as of the time of recording this episode, March 26th, which means that it's probably going to be somewhere between $1 and $20,000 per <laughs> share by the time the episode's published. Uh, we've been covering some of the interesting drama behind GameStop, Wall Street Bets, Chicken Tenders on the podcast this semester, and we're curious about your general thoughts about the current state of retail investing. So can you tell us a little bit about... Um, you know, there's this idea of like retail versus non-retail investing. What are your general thoughts about that dispute? What do you mean by non-retail investing? I mean, like when people are sort of saying retail investing, I think like what they really mean are like people without experience yeah. that are on Robin Hood and are like getting their stimulus checks and yeah. and buying stocks versus like institutions, All right, right? hedge funds. All right, so there's the institution versus. Yeah. So presumably the institutions are grown-ups and can figure things out themselves, or Darwin takes care of it, yep. That's right. So the retail investor uh, has been empowered over the years. Uh, prior to 1975, there were fixed commissions, and so it cost two, $300 to trade, uh, to place a trade. And in 1980, so, so things changed in 75 with May Day, and commissions became deregulated, which was good for institutions. And it was also, it became good for the retail investor. And part of the 1975 Security Act amendments, Congress made these, the stock exchanges work towards producing real-time quotes. So back in the old days, you had to go to your stockbroker and you could see the price, what it was 15 minutes ago. You couldn't see real-time. Oh, interesting. And so in 1983, it became such that you could see prices real time. And that was really important for retail investors. Why? So before 1983, 95% of all the volume in stocks was done on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. Okay. Gosh. That's and <laughs> you couldn't compete with that because you, if I was going to try to compete against New York, I couldn't guarantee that I would give your customer the best, the same price that they would get on New York. Was that the purpose of... What was the regulation pre-1975? So, 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 so you can argue that, exchange, that property rights, which is what you guys teach, so an exchange, what do they produce? Part of what they do produce is a price. Right. Mm -hmm. So you could argue that New York Stock Exchange produces this thing called a price, and why should they give it away? Yeah. And Oh, mean that that's a like value they're creating. In yeah, order right. to figure out what price IBM should be trading for, you need to go to the floor the New York Stock Exchange, which is where all, again, 90 to 95% of the volume before 75 took place there. And so it made sense that if you wanted your client to get the best price, you had to write it to the New York Stock Exchange. 
Now, the government thought it was kind of a bad deal because it's a little bit monopolistic, yes? And, and there was this thought that maybe the prices that New York was charging to kind of get in and see what the price was were a little high. And so, in again, 1975, the government basically expropriated the New York Stock Exchange's property mm. by saying, you have to tell people the price real time. Now, they gave them access to revenue stream that I don't want to get into now. It's kind of in the weeds. But what it did is it made people immediately be able to price match. Interesting. Immediately be yeah. able to price match. So before 83, you couldn't. And that was a, that was a showstopper. But as of 1983, it became easy for me to kind of compete with the New York Stock Exchange if I'm some other venue and say, I'll match that. Right? And so that's what this guy Bernard Madoff figured out. And basically, so... Madoff said, gee, the New York Stock Exchange is charging way too... So they were charging three cents a share to kind of process retail orders and help them get executed. So this is the beginning of payment this for This is order the beginning. Form, right? so, th- so this is how it helps retail investors. So before, it was $200, $300 to trade for a retail investor, and it took three, four, five minutes to find out that you've traded. That's very low frequency. <laughs> and so this guy Madoff comes in, and he was into the computers and some other bad stuff, but he was into the computers. And he every month he would send a list to like Merrill Lynch and A.G. Edwards. There were no disc online brokers back then because, again, there was no Internet. But Madoff would say, gee, if you send me your retail orders, I'll pay you two cents a share. To execute them at a price, same price you get in New York, as opposed to New as York. opposed to paying three cents. So it's a yeah. five cent shift. So now all of a sudden, what used to be a cost center for brokers becomes a profit center. Now, of course, Madoff wasn't paying as much as you could. He was the innovator, the first yeah, right. person. Yeah. So he's paying two cents, and pretty soon people start figuring out, well, shit, there's money on the table here, and you see competition come in, mm-hmm. and. You see the big iBanks start doing it themselves internally instead of selling it. It's like, oh, interesting. And so now all of a sudden you see, and, and back in the old days before 2001, if you wanted to buy or sell stock, you either bought it at $20 or 20 and 12 cents or 20 and 25 cents or 20 and 37 cents. And so prices couldn't get very close to each other because of the pricing grid. Oh, okay. Oh, and okay. and so even I mean, if prices is very discreet, even as prices, even if yeah. prices were as tight as they could get, the difference between the, the price you buy and sell out would be twelve cents. Hmm. That's way too much. Yeah. That's way too much money to make off a retail investor. So what Madoff was doing was he was by paying, reducing the grid from like twelve cents to maybe eight cents or four cents. Mm-hmm. I still don't quite understand the mechanism. So, all right. It used to be the case that if I wanted to make a trade, I'd have to pay. So what was the, what's the three cents for if I wanted to no, So Merrill Lynch would have to pay New York Stock Exchange three cents a share for them to, to, to execute. To take okay, the order. Right. Yeah. Now, and but, then but, so, you would either, then they would let you buy at the best price posted in the market, which is on a very fixed grid. So, but then Madoff is flipping this around and saying, I'm going to pay you Merrill Lynch. I'm going to pay but you I'm gonna, But I'm not going to take everything. I'm going to take certain types of orders so just how is he? So how is he so, making so let, money let, off that though? Let's let's back up a second. In Vegas, do they let card counters play blackjack? No. Why? Because they'll beat the house. But couldn't the house change the odds so that they can make money off card counters? 
They could. What would happen to the regular people that go play blackjack? Would they still play at those odds? Play. No. Okay. So the price that you see in New York is so that you can survive against card counters. The retail investors are like people who can't count cards. And so in uh, some sense, the prices you see in New York are the prices at which you can break even trading against smart money. Mm-hmm. Madoff identifies people who he knows when they trade, they don't, you know, their buys don't predict price increases and their sales don't predict price decreases. So it's in some sense, it's like, why don't we, why didn't Obamacare work? Because young people are paying too much for damn insurance. Yes, they just didn't buy insurance. Because they're too healthy. Mm-hmm. So a pooling price, charging all people the same price for health insurance, isn't going to work. It's the same way in the stock market. So he's filtering through these orders. He's he's basically knows that if it's a small order in a certain type of stock from a certain broker, it's not going to be smart money. What's well, so what's oh, the mechanism? So how does he make money off of that though? Oh, so I know that Jason's I, made a I dumb buy trade. it twenty and I sell it twenty. 0.04 and I make four cents on the round trip. And so trade. he's holding on to these things. No, he's he's or, like a bookie. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that, he's like a bookie. Reason, that, that analogy makes sense to me. More than <laughs> all, all the other analogies. That's very telling. Used. That's very telling. <laughs> no, he's like a bookie. Okay, interesting. And so it is okay. So now fast forward. So, so so competition is wonderful, Adam Smith. And so you know commissions start to come down. You know, you hear complaints that almost all retail order flow now is executed away from an exchange. You see, you know, nine ninety. I believe Daytech in nineteen ninety five was charging nine ninety nine for a trade. You now see, I mean, two thousand seventeen Fidelity went to zero commissions. Yeah, Robinhood's at zero commissions. That's right. And so, so these brokers are making money by. Selling order flow, although although they're making less because now stock prices trade on pennies instead of eighths of a dollar. But brokers make money lots of different ways. They make money off of margin accounts. But one of the, this payment for order flow stuff. So for Fidelity, they stopped taking payment for order flow. But basically, discount brokerage can be a loss leader for them because they're conglomerate, right? Oh, sure. They're making money elsewhere. But someone like Robinhood or somebody like Ameritrade, you know, for Robinhood, my guess is these order flow payments are probably 50, 60% of the revenue. You could check, you could actually check their earnings. So, um, I have a naive question that maybe I know the answer to. Like, why is Robinhood selling this stuff if there's money to be made off of it? So, like, so, so they're, they're getting paid. They are getting paid. Yeah, oh, yeah, but like, but presumably somebody's buying it because they can make more money. Ah, ah, so oh, back I see in, what you're saying. So back in the old days, in the '90s, Merrill Lynch had a trading desk. Solomon Smith Barney had a trading desk. But those are expensive. Citadel runs a very good trading desk. Got it. Yeah, and specialization. They have, they have okay. scale economy, yeah. and so in yeah. fact, if they ban payment for order flow, what's going to happen is everybody's going to have their own trading desk again. Oh, interesting. And does Robinhood Do you, start charging commission in that world? Uh, what, what happens to Robinhood yeah, in right. the world? Uh, so in the world, you know, you hear about potential legislation that's like... That's, they will not... You can't legislate away the value of something. You can waters, legislate waters away gonna flow, exchanges, right? No, you can... Well, it's just going to find another way. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, like, okay. So, so in Canada, where it's kind of harder to do this, the brokers just own the exchange. So then oh, Citadel now offers some sort of So it just service. becomes dark. At least yeah. now we see it. There's transparency. If you, you can't legislate this away. 
And I don't think it's bad. I see nothing wrong with this. Now, you could argue... So when does it become bad, right? What When does it... So that's the big so, argument, right? That something bad was happening between the retail well, investors, and I think that, Robinhood, I think and Citadel. There's lobbyists. So people like these high-frequency trading firms like Jump Trading would love to get the retail order flow and not pay for it, right? So so who get, who stands to gain if you could somehow get rid of this? It would be the exchanges because the retail order flow would go back to the exchanges. What do you mean by Jump Trading? Jump Trading is a uh, HFT firm. It's, it's just, it's like, the, yeah, so, so it's just the name of a firm that that trades for its own account. They would, so... If you stopped Citadel from paying for order flow, the orders would have to go to an exchange where people would compete to try to trade against them, but they wouldn't have to pay for the orders. So you have lobbyists in D.C. that are trying to get rid of this. It's probably the New York Stock Exchange's lobbyists. Sure. Yeah. Right? It's NASDAQ's lobbyists. ICE, Intercontinental. That's right. exactly yeah, right. That's so, right. That makes but, a lot, but, that but makes a lot of sense. But the SEC, thank God has always been about, we'll just make it more transparent. We'll make it more transparent. And so so, so I'm kind of surprised. This stuff creeps up. It crept up in 95. It creeps up 2000-ish. It pops its head occasionally, which is good for me because I do research in the area. But uh, it's not going to go away. So what's the response to someone that, that has the criticism that's like, look, I'm not facing the same prices that someone that's doing high frequency trading or that's like the, the well, let's 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 put it this way don't you think it's a pretty good world where you look at your brokerage screen you see that you can buy at $20 you can sell at 19.99 you push a button you immediately find out that you did that trade and it doesn't cost you anything I that I, would that would not exist in a world where you have to route stuff to an exchange cuz prices may change while your orders in transit mm-hmm. and so I guess I don't see so the like issue. Re- the retail side would the retail be side. hurt, right? But the like re- institutional investors, they would be able to like get around that issue, right? So it's so there's these things. So so even right now, and this is weeds, and this is why you should take John Shim's class. Uh, Great plug. Yeah, we uh, appreciate shout outs. John Shim teaches trading in markets. He used to be a high frequency trader at Jump Trading, but. So institutions have these things called dark pools, which is a place for them to interact with order flow that that wasn't purchased but still pretty good. So institutions, okay. the market is working to try to find ways. But you know what? If an institution is not willing to pay as much as Citadel to trade against retail, so what? Are there like tranches of order flow? Yes. Wow. You can think of a funnel. It's, it's like making cream. You take the cream off the top. Again, this is weeds, but when you route an order to the New York Stock Exchange, they still charge you to trade it. Whereas these all these other people pay you, mm-hmm. and these dark pools charge you nothing. And so basically, you can imagine, if I'm if I'm a broker, I'm going to try to get, I'm going to try to pay as little as possible to get this stuff done. If I get paid, great. If I can't get paid, I'm going to try to let it interact with an institution. If I can't have that done, then I got to send it to an exchange. So what's the fundamental thing that's missing from these arguments that you know, the argument is like this is unfair because I don't I don't what's face fair the same mean? price yeah, exactly right it's like and what does it mean you don't get the same price what is hap well okay so the first thing about fairness why should why should an institution who thinks they've identified a better 
uh, that, that the stock's undervalued, why should they get to trade a lot at the, at the misvalued price? I don't quite understand that. Suppose that I'm in a, suppose I'm American Century and I figured out, maybe God talked to me, and I figured out this price of Acme is going to go from 25 to 30 over the next day. Yeah. Why should I get to trade a lot at 25? Whereas retail investors wouldn't be have that option. So, so, the, so the whole argument is institutions don't want their trades to move prices where they need to go, right? They want to make they want to make money off kind of their research. And oh, sure. They want to buy as much as they can at twenty five because they know the stock's worth thirty. Oh, oh, wait, wait. So let's take a step back uh, because that that's fundamentally related to like one of these complaints. That's like you have these market movers. Right, so suppose I'm a big institutional investor, yep, and I pour a ton of money into a stock. Let's call it GameStop. Yeah. GameStop. <laughs> right, I pour a ton of money into the stock, or like we can mobilize Reddit. Like, um, well, that's not it's. That's, that's well, not. Uh, we we have a lot of money. All right, we okay. we pour it into a stock. We can drive up the price. Well, so now you're talking market manipulation. Well, I you mean, have to kind of believe. That the price function, but I thought isn't that was, that's symmetric. kind of related to the the example you have. All right, so we, we want to buy this thing at twenty five because we know it's going to be at thirty. But like in some sense, don't you want for you buying it at twenty five to push it up to thirty? Like I don't you buy want as to have much it if I know it's going to be worth thirty because of some sort of earnings announcement or something like that? I want to buy eleven billion shares at twenty five or twenty or fifteen or whatever, right? Yeah. yeah, But so what institutions worry about when they trade is something called price impact. So once people figure out that smart institutions in the market trading, they kind of I mean, there's there's a long finance literature on this type of thing. I think I'm and just so confused about the timing, right? So like the, the the I think the causal impact you'd want if you're the firm buying at twenty five is like you want to buy at twenty five. And then you want that information to be released after you've already had a chance to buy it at 25 that then moves the price up to 30, 35. Fine. And and so the institutions think that if they get to trade against a lot of retail, it lets them buy more at 25 in our little example. Why? Because the the retail guys aren't adjusting kind of – they're not adjusting their trading behavior. Oh, they're okay. just they're oh, they're not smart money. So right? so okay. So prices are going to move quicker. So in fact, when there's, there's more smart money in there. Recent, than, mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Jeff Alexander and Linda something at Clarity did a real nice study. Then the last month or two it was in the journal, talking about with all this order flow. So a lot of institutions try to trade in a way that there's a certain percentage of the volume every five minutes. It's called VWAP. Okay. So much volume is being purchased right now. And the institutions don't have access to that volume. So in order to be 5% of volume, and they can't get to this volume, and they're having to trade a lot on an exchange, and they're really moving. So so it, certainly the institutions, they, from their perspective, they're worse off when they can't interact with the retail investor. But there's nothing stopping them from paying for order flow and trading against it. Going back to that point, though, um, about moving prices... You know, so you want you're arguing that these institutions are trying to minimize their price, price impact. impact. That's right. And in fact, there's a nice 75 paper by Andre Parole and Eric Siri. So the measure most of the trading algorithms use is something called implementation shortfall, and it's kind of a measure of how much did your yeah. So it, the the 
the more you can trade without moving prices, the better you are as a trader or an algorithm or something like that. Again, go John Shim. Okay. So um, if there's more, let's call it, let's say there's like dumb money and there's smart money out there. If there's more dumb money in the pool, like does how much does that inhibit price discovery? Uh, the more dumb money there is, the more... So if everybody was informed, there, what's that no trade theorem that you guys talk about in econ? There's, the no there's a no there's, yeah, what is that? There's a Milgram no trade theorem that if everybody, if there's no dumb money, then why would anybody trade? Oh, yeah, yeah. right. Oh, so that, you, that makes so, sense because there's no like so you need, greater fool. You know, it's just like, do, does it bother me that we have people that trade for just random reasons or for joy? No, because in some sense, it means there's more kind of money to be had by people who actually do the research and invest, you know, investigate the stocks. And so, you know, from my perspective, if people want to use the stock market to gamble, that's great because there's more sheep that smart money can trade against. And so in some sense, but the retail invest, it's necessary for the retail investor to kind of be there, or at least people to be trading for reasons that aren't related to the value of the security. For example, I trade every month. Why? Because I want to work at Walmart when I'm 65 by choice, not because I have to. And so <laughs> I want my 401 to be <laughs> by choice. That's right. Yeah. yeah. By choice, not because I have to. Yeah. And so shout out to capitalism for making all this possible. <laughs> That's what I believe. Uh, how does that jive with like the efficient market hypothesis? So if, like GameStop goes from five dollars. So $200. I encourage all your listeners. My class just did this. There's a. Uh, the Challenger Space Shuttle blew up in 87. There's a three-part Netflix series on this. I don't know if you've seen it. No. Uh, it took a year for the government to figure out which of the four companies was at fault. The stock market figured it out in 20 minutes. So shares fell for... For Morton Thiokol. Price. Okay. By, and the market cap dropped by $200 million. The other three companies fell because at least at first, and then they recovered. So, I mean, I, you know, as an the day that uh, the AP Twitter account was hacked, that's another good one. Look that up. It oh, was, really? AP Twitter was hacked and they said the White House was under attack. The market goes down by a good amount. A few seconds later, uh, our account was hacked. It was a hoax. Comes right back to where it used to be. Oh, interesting. As you speak about efficient markets. Yeah. I mean, so like, I mean, like definitely like price movements in financial markets are going to reflect information. Almost always. Now, GameStop is a weird situation. That's too weird for this podcast. But if you care, look up Jim Angel GameStop. He does a very nice job of talking about kind of all the things that are going on that, that are allowing this GameStop thing to persist. It has to do with it's very hard to take a short position. There, there's lots of things going on there that are probably too deep for this. Because it's not. It's no, it's no longer just discounted cash flows, that, right? That's it's, right. There, People, there's a lot of financial optimists and now. pessimists can't yeah. equally express their opinion in the stock market. I guess I, we should uh, just take a second and say like what we mean by efficient market hypothesis. So I kind of casually think of this as like the price that you see kind of quoted for these things reflects all the information that all the uh, publicly available information, publicly even, available even, information. even the information that hedge funds are getting from satellites as they watch to see how deep the boats are sinking in the water, right? And what's then the mechanism is just mm -hmm. buying and selling. That's right. right. There's just an article exchange. in the journal today talking about. Uh, so, the futures exchange wanted to start futures on football games to help. I bookies. saw that. But yeah. there's but you know these markets called predictive markets. 
the journal article today talks about how well these markets do at actually predicting the events. Like for you econ guys, the Iowa electronic markets, or if you go to predict it website. These markets are fascinating. Yeah. I lost my ass on the Georgia Senate thing. I couldn't believe. <laughs> I couldn't believe that we couldn't get one of those two. <laughs> we being the Libertarian Party. The, the correct side. Or the Green Party. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Checks and balances are a great thing. Right, right now, it's not good. Maybe this is a good chance to segue into... Political preferences. Yes, no. Oh, right. right That's right, a different right, podcast. Right. Invest, investing advice. <laughs> no. All right, okay. we're, All right, right. We, we consistently say that we are not giving investment advice in this podcast. But maybe rapid-fire questions? It's time. I think it's time for some rapid-fire questions. All right, I got the first one. What's the worst part about working out with Jason Reed? Jason's a stud. He's humbles you. He can climb rope with no feet. And he's he's so annoying. Like how not just will he humble you? He will do it in like the kindest manner. Yeah, I didn't realize oh. he played. He, he was he could have played uh, college baseball. Did you know that? Yeah, I found that out this week. Radar was his nickname. I did not All right, we're gonna get our lies and love. So, what's your favorite thing about teaching MBAs? <laughs> we'll take that as an answer. <laughs> we'll just take that as an answer. It's tough. Yep. Uh, say something nice about arts and letters. I'm an econ undergrad. Okay. There All we right. go. All right. Um, what's the worst place on campus? We ask this one to everyone. What's the worst place on campus? Yeah, where do you just not like to go? Well, that's tough. What do people say? Like... Uh, the radiation lab. We'll see. I've yeah. never been there. The library. Certain certain hallways and like far off teaching classes. You we have a cushy here in Mendoza. We're teaching in Mendoza and Stair or even right? Gettys. But and Gettys, oh, which is nice. a beautiful building. Favorite part about campus? Though. Yeah, you can't say Mendoza. Oh, just being able to take walks in the afternoon when the weather's nice. Yeah, to clear yeah, the head. Yeah, right? Absolutely, that's really that. good. Um, and everybody comes to work because we're. There's no commute. And so if you go to a city college, oftentimes the professors run around, except when they used to teach. So it's kind of nice to be in a nice residential campus like this. It would be nice when faculty, all the faculty are actually back. They too. should have their ass back right now. That's my opinion. Say, yeah, no, that's, that's, <laughs> but again, <laughs> I lean a little bit. I lean to the right. So that's a great. <laughs> so we want to ask a question. What's your favorite U.S. president of all time then? Reagan. All right. Um, My least favorite? Oh, yeah. We can see. It was Obama, but Biden seems to be. <laughs> anyway, you don't have to put that in if you don't want to. No, that's fine. I, I was just trying to think, <laughs> like, I was trying to think about, like, it's good for I was, people I was gonna, that have I was gonna, exposure to I was different push on, like, well, uh, other left leaning presidents. But, like, I, that's. Only... I've got a nice Trump, uh, a nice photograph, a nice frame of a stock, share of stock in one of the. Bankrupt Trump companies in my office. <laughs> I do see that every time I walk in, and I'm just like, that's amazing. <laughs> I don't advocate for Trump's behavior, but I do do have that in the office. I, I do miss his, like, Twitter presence. I miss... Oh, I'm off of Twitter. I mean, as soon as they start to censor, it's like bullshit. And I used to be on Twitter a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. It's like, I worry about the... Cen- I, I worry a lot about the censorship. All right. Uh, one more figure... Bernie Madoff, one of your many personal heroes or your greatest personal hero? No. <laughs> it's really sad. I mean, the tragedy that's Madoff is, is, 
just could you maybe like explain about that? I, I think lots of the listeners know Madoff for Ponzi schemes, and that's it. Yeah. So at the beginning, he was a trader, and he was like president of Nasdaq, and he he was an innovator on this payment order flow thing. Now maybe somebody else would have figured it out, but he figured it out first. And uh, at some point, my guess is the competition that came on in the 80s and 90s made it to where he was making less money off the purchase stuff. And at some point, he slipped into the Ponzi scheme thing. And, and it was, I mean, was it just as simple as like it was a borrowing separate floor. from money from people to pay other people and then yep. you get, get yep. snowballing and, and he was promising returns or something? Now, this like, is another thing we teach in intro finance. It's like if something, if something sounds too good to be true, too good to be true, you should walk. And so anybody who had any sense said, there's no way you're going to give me this much return for this little risk. Show me what you're doing. And he either didn't show them or he'd show something that made no sense. And so any, about half the people he approached didn't invest with him. So, you know, I've walked away from something that a friend of mine told me about. And I turned out that he wouldn't show me what he was doing. I later found out what he was doing. It's like, okay, now I understand it. I would have given you my money. But am I pissed I didn't? No. Yeah. That's no. actually, that's a that's a piece of investing advice that we'll endorse. That's exactly right. And Maybe a good place to stop. That's a good place the last piece yeah. of in, in well, investing advice. Good job with the podcast, together. guys. Keep it up. That was great to hear Robert discuss payment for order flow and give us some of his hot takes. Uh, what we should do as a follow-up is have John Shim on the program. Uh, John's an assistant professor of finance here in Mendoza, and his current research on trading fees and market design has received a lot of attention actually in Bloomberg and other outlets. It's also relevant to this ongoing discussion we're having on Robinhood's business model, zero explicit trading fees, shadow costs of sharing your data if you're a retail investor. Yeah, I think that sounds great. Let's have him on. All right. So until next time, thanks for joining us on All Us Equal. And as always, feel free to reach out to Jason or myself if you'd like to suggest a question or a topic for an episode.